0: Well, good morning. So great to see all of you. If I haven't gotten the chance to meet you yet, as Jeremy said, my name's Eliza. I was an intern at Broadway in 2021 in the summer, and I am so thrilled to be back again this summer. It's always such a joy to be with you all. So, we are still continuing going through 1st and 2nd Samuel. And until this point, we have seen the rise of David, now King David. We've seen how God takes this little shepherd boy and calls him beloved, and he anoints him into leadership as king. We've seen the same unlikely shepherd boy then go and defeat the Philistines. We've seen him then extravagantly worship God, and we've seen him proclaiming to the people that it's not exactly how we see it, that's not the truth, but the truth is what God says it is. This morning though, today, we see the explicit downfall of King David. It's perhaps expected in the story, a story of such humanity, to see something bad happen. Throughout the weeks, we've seen explicit humanity of David, seen his strengths and weaknesses. But in this passage this morning in 1 Samuel 11, we see David incite tragedy, and we see him incite harm. So let's hear these words from 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, when kings go off to war, David sent Joab along with his servants and all the Israelites, and they destroyed the Ammonites, attacking the city of Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his couch and was pacing back and forth on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent someone and inquired about the woman. And the report came back. Isn't this Eliam's daughter Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers to go get her. When she came to him, he laid with her, and then she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to David. I am pregnant, she said. Then David sent a message to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, husband of Bathsheba. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked about the welfare of Joab and the army and how the battle was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. However, Uriah slept at the palace entrance with all of his master's servants. He didn't go down to his own house. And David was told Uriah didn't go down to his own house. So David asked Uriah, haven't you just returned from a journey? Why didn't you go home? And the chests in Israel and Judah are all living in tents, Uriah told David. David. And my master Joab and my master's troops are camping in the open field. They are at war. How could I go home and eat and drink and make love to my wife? I swear on your very life, I will not do that. So then David told Uriah, stay here one more day. Tomorrow I will send you back. And so Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day. The next day, David called for him and he ate and drank. And in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep in the same place along his master's servants. And once again, he did not go to his home. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And he wrote in the letter Place Uriah at the front of the fiercest battle and then pull back from him so that he will be struck down and die. So as Joab was attacking the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew there were strong warriors. And when the city soldiers came out and attacked Joab, some of the people from David's army fell, and Uriah was one of them. So there is a great deal to unpack here, right? So David has just come back from war, which now we know thousands of years later, after we have done and we have at our disposal a lot of research on this, that is no easy thing, no easy thing to come back. It is incredibly difficult. But what has unfolded in this story is that David has seen Bathsheba. David has sent for Bathsheba, who is married to the soldier Uriah, David sees her and wants her and takes her. And Bathsheba finds out that she is pregnant. And David tries to get Uriah, husband of Bathsheba, back into the fold from war so that David possibly could go blameless here. Uriah comes back from war. Uriah refuses. And David has Uriah sent to the front lines where it is fiercest, and Uriah dies. Friends, this is not a pretty story. I don't think I really have to say that, but it's not pretty, right? It's one that really can stir us, stir emotions deep inside of us. And we know that abuse is run rampant in our world. Abuse of just about every kind is right in this text. It's hard stuff to deal with. And so I just want to name that as we go throughout this time together, maybe take breaths, be kind to yourself. We know that this is hard stuff for many of us. And sometimes we need to be kind to ourselves and we need to step out again, take breaths. And I just want to go ahead and say that I believe that God is in that too. God is in knowing yourself and God is in loving yourself. So over the history of interpretation, one of the loudest and the most respected interpretations, I say respected, interpretations of 2 Samuel 11 has been described as adultery. Adultery, though, requires mutual consent. It implies mutuality. It implies agency. And it assumes that there are two willing partners that are otherwise committed But Bathsheba did not choose, she did not agree to this action. Instead, it was chosen for her. We hear that David sent his servants that were slaves, who also probably did not have much say in the matter, to go get her and to go take her. And she had little to absolutely no power to refuse the king of Israel. David's crime was an abuse of power to say the least. As sovereign over Israel's greatest and largest empire, we could probably safely argue that David has the most power of anyone, maybe any Israelite in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. We see that he has the ability to take out Uriah just like that. He wants it, it is done. He's moved to the front lines. David is a human, right? He's a human with the capacity to act in concert with divine love. But he's also a human that has the ability to make other choices. To act out of selfish desire and again incite harm. Now we may be tempted to see people such as Bathsheba, people that are in these vulnerable positions, and think that they should probably try to defend themselves. This has been a common voice of response to Bathsheba's personhood in 2 Samuel 11. That the scripture shows no evidence, right? That she said no or that she attempted to refuse or stop David. And therefore, as this line of thinking goes, Bathsheba was a willing participant. However, as we see over and over and over again in scripture, the Bible rejects this understanding. For the Bible, the victim of a crime is always the victim of a crime. Injustice is always injustice. And having to prove to the reader or hearer or interpreter of the scripture passage what might have really happened with David and with Bathsheba, is really quite uncomfortably similar to the plight that many people, especially statistically women and girls, find themselves having to prove when they are met with abuse. And while this passage is probably meant to focus on David's life, probably definitely, it's a piece of his story, right? And that's important work because David is really important. And he's one of those people in the Bible, it is so rare, because we get to see how God moves and works in him through so many books of the Bible. And it's important to think about where God is with David. But I think this morning, it might also be even a little bit more worthwhile to really focus on Bathsheba. Again, in a literary sense, David's abuse against Bathsheba is about David, Bathsheba is a character in David's story, one of the many women in his life, a wife later on, she ends up being, that is named. And so considering Bathsheba's story, since we don't have too much right here, it requires us going beyond the text a little bit. Because as we see here, we don't really hear too much about what she's thinking or feeling, and so I want to talk about her for a little bit. Bathsheba's name is preserved in the Hebrew Bible, which is all things considering a little uncommon. Her name, Bathsheba, it means daughter of an oath. So people understand her to be someone who was a promise, she was a promise kept. Of course, her role as we'll later see is magnified in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament as she is the mother of Solomon who later becomes king. And through him, she's going to become a queen mother, which is a Judean monarchy tradition in the Judean monarchy. So she does have more than just this story. But only a little over 100 names in the Hebrew Bible are given to women. It's a little less than 10%. These are just numbers, but I do think they're interesting and a little important. And the only words that Bathsheba is granted in our passage today are, I am pregnant. That's two words in Hebrew. This is the phrase she's given. A brief string of words that speaks volumes, and that, to be certain, contains a multitude of layers. To think about doing this work of imagining a bit beyond the text that's right in front of us, It might be helpful to bring in Midrash, which is a Jewish mode of interpretation. And Midrash has many layers as to what it is, how we can define it. It's different for different communities and different individuals. But Midrash, this Jewish tradition is, I'm gonna once again think about a meaning of a word, but I think that meanings of words are important. Midrash basically means to seek. It means to investigate. And many verbs can describe this task, but what it's supposed to do at the heart of the task of Midrash is that it's supposed to usher communities into a vibrant relationship with the text, with sacred, holy scripture. Rather than looking at scripture as if it's exact or it's small or this equals this, Midrash opens up our worlds. The business of Midrash is being persistent in wrestling with the text, asking questions. And so Wilda Gaffney, who is an incredible biblical scholar and Episcopalian priest, she engages with this interpretive task of Midrash. And she kind of coins her own phrase for this and how she sees herself working with this interpretation. And she calls it womanist Midrash. So for Wilda Gaffney, womanist midrash, is bringing in her experience as a black woman and considering the history and everyday experiences of other black women in tandem with Holy Scripture. There's a conversation happening. And Gaffney says this about womanist midrash, the goal of it. She says that it attends to marginalize characters in biblical narratives, especially women and girls, intentionally including and catering and sitting on non-Israelite people and enslaved persons. It listens to and for their voices, and it acknowledges that often the text does not speak for them or even intend them to speak or let alone hear them. So in this work, it's a communal task that she sees as very important to being in conversation with other people about, bring your own experience to the table. She sees the idea of sanctified imagination to be at the center of it. Sanctified imagination is a necessary approach, she thinks. So what if, even is sanctified imagination? She sees sanctified imagination as where we respect the Holy Scripture we see it as authority we love it we take it seriously and in that knowledge we enter into the text and consider what it would look out look like to fill out some missing details to say what happened here maybe this happened maybe maybe this maybe that but it's the goal is to prayerfully consider, descriptions and realities that might seem amiss. It's not necessarily a tool to engage with so we can put puzzle pieces together and think this is exactly what happened or make everything comprehensive or line up super beautifully. Really, honestly, Midrash often raises way more questions than it gives answers. But Midrash and the sacred imagination allows us to dig into scripture to consider the story behind the story in the lines between the pages. Bathsheba is remembered for the worst day of her life, the worst thing that happened to her. But she is also remembered for how the broken pieces of her life were put back together and how something good came out of the evil that was done to her. Not something good happening to her because evil was done to her. I love this caveat that Will Gaffney provides. I think it's words that we all need to hear. She says it is important to note that God did not require anything to happen to her that happened to her to Bathsheba. This did not. This was not required for God's plan of salvation and redemption. God never requires our harm. But God simply wove those ragged and frayed strands into something more beautiful than we could have ever imagined. A beauty that is all the more because we know the ugliness that was transformed at the heart of it. Bathsheba made the best she could out of the situation. And God was with her. 3,000 years later, and I'm pretty sure we still don't completely understand that power to hurt and power to kill is not strength. It does not equal happiness. And perhaps we might hear voices that read the part of Bathsheba's story that we've read today and say, well, everything happens for a reason or that everything happens for our good ultimately. But yet, we as the body of Christ... As people of faith, know that our God, who can create anything out of no thing, can transform any situation and restore any brokenness. But God does not need us to be broken. God does not need us to be devastated or abused to elevate us. God was with Bathsheba. When we choose to wander into the life of Bathsheba, make her the focus to imagine her life and her person and her agency, we quickly see that there are gaps in the text. What was she thinking? Is she okay? Did she have people that cared for her? Did she have people to talk to? Who were her people? The gaps are abundant for the person of Bathsheba in this passage. And even in all of that, we know that God's presence is in the gaps. In the gaps, there God is working to mend and restore the brokenhearted. God is nurturing and sustaining and transforming in those gaps Ultimately, we know that Jesus is the product of Bathsheba's lineage. It makes sense. I think we know that Jesus really lived for the gaps. Jesus Christ is consistently and was consistently finding himself and positioning himself in the places where no one dared to go, no one dared to be seen even more, at tables and in houses that no one wanted any part of. Jesus Christ wanted to be there not simply just to be, but to live. Wasn't there just to save souls or tell people they were doing things wrong, but he was there for the stories to be heard, to listen, and to love. And so we might be tempted to find life lessons in this text or in other really difficult texts in the Bible, and that looks different for all of us, We might want to force this story into a corner and somehow communicate God's will for us in this super relevant way that really makes sense that we can pick up and take out of here that will provide clarity and reasoning where, well, frankly, there is no clarity in reasoning, it feels. David's exploitation and manipulation of power, even God-given power, is a paradigm for the ages, our own included. David's actions can be a mirror in which to examine our own culture and our own actions, our own communities hurts. And still God's will and hopes we know can be carried out by humanity without human responsibility or accountability being completely eliminated. And so where is God? Where is God in a story where God is not even mentioned? In a story, in a tragedy, where maybe we would really love for God to show up and say something, give us some kind of word here. To find God, though, we listen to what is said and what isn't said. We engage in that sacred imagination. We wonder... And we seek. Anna Carter Florence, who is a homiletics, a preaching professor, deals with a lot of different hard texts. And she says this when she deals with those texts. She says that if we could not imagine other possibilities than what is offered here on the surface of the page, then we would crumble with despair. God is in the imagining, she says even especially a text that doesn't mention the holy name is teeming with evidence about who God is. The narrator's attention seems to be totally on David, not really on Bathsheba, as we have mentioned. So there's an absence of her perspective in the story. And still, despite this absence and through this absence, we hear and we can feel Bathsheba's story, her perspective. A woman who had particularities, a woman who had a personality, all of which God saw as, as beloved, a woman whose identity many people possibly can relate to today, people who God see as beloved. And so what do we do with that? What do we know because of that, and what are we called to do? Well, first of all, we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ. We know that we are part of the church of Jesus Christ, not the church of David, who is still very important and we can learn alongside of as we walk and continue to walk alongside him in Scripture. But we are part of the church of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who calls each of us beloved, who freely gives us grace, and who walks alongside us. The same God who was with Bathsheba, standing in the gaps, transforming and restoring and holding dearly, and the same God who we see remained with David. What we know about God is that God shows us what real strength is. Real strength is working to break the chains of the oppressed. Real strength is helping the captives sin-free, bringing liberation to all. And real strength is to love and serve the Lord as Christ did. God calls each of us, every one of us, to understand our own strength and our own power and how it can be used for good and ill. And then God calls us to be strong in the Lord and not to use our powers and desires for ill. God calls us beloved. God does not call us to experience tragedies and hurt for our own good, But God calls us to the gaps of these stories, and God meets us there to ask questions, to wonder, to imagine, to dream alongside God, to act alongside God. And so maybe when you read or hear this passage or another passage in Scripture, there's a part of it, maybe a verse or a phrase that someone says. Maybe there's a demeanor that you just feel you know is in your head as you rehearse the scene of scripture. Maybe there's something that leads you to the truth of who God is in your life and in the world. Maybe it leads you to a question about God. Maybe you're wondering how God shows up in these spaces named and unnamed. What I know to be true about God in this text is that God, once again, is in the gaps. I imagine God with Bathsheba in the aftermath that she is left to deal with, in her words of, I am pregnant. What I know of God is that God never desires silence to cover up injustice. God calls us, just as God called the prophets to speak truth to power, to ask questions, and to again wonder and to imagine. And the resurrected Christ calls us to faith. Faith that is in us, that remains in us when nothing else seems to. Faith that is in our bones, in our souls, and in our hearts. And this morning, we're not really here to figure out the most brilliant interpretation or the most remarkable take on this scripture or to crack the case. We're not here to leave with no questions, although that would be really impressive. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think it will ever happen, but maybe. But we aren't here to only figure out the whys. But this morning, we are here, you are here, week in and week out, a part of a church community because it's about justice for the oppressed. It's about liberation for the captives and it's about the realm of God breaking in. It's about, as we hear in the beginning of the gospel of John, it's about God dwelling in each and every one of us. It's about God dwelling and moving into the neighborhood. So thanks be to God for that. Thanks be to God who stands in the gaps with us. Thanks be to the God that desires our sacred transformation, our imagination. Thanks be to the God that is and always will be with us. Amen.